Revolution I can't get no call to action But I try and I try and I try Hello and welcome to Call to Action, the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, business and beyond. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp and I'm Giles Edwards. Today I've caught Jenny Romanek. In June 2020, episode 39, we cast a net off the coast of Adelaide to catch one of the globe's greatest researchers and sci-fi fans. Research professor and associate director at that conveyor belt of marketing minds, the Ehrenberg Bass Institute, Jenny has advised many of the world's biggest brands. Now she's back, three years and one new book better. We've snared Jenny for a chimwag on her latest industry bible, better brand health. In our last episode, Jenny said, when we're building distinctive brand assets, the context is the brand. And when you're building brand, the context is the category that you are operating in. Context is vital, as without it, you cannot embed the brand or asset in the memory, and it cannot be retrieved later. Welcome back to the show, Jenny. Hi, Jazz. Right, seven quickfire questions, and a quick reminder that these don't have to be fair comparisons, Jenny, so uh, cocktails or karaoke? Cocktails. How brands grow or a scandalous life? Depends on where I am. Right here, right now. No, that's where I am. I'm going to go for a scandalous life. Wonderful, wonderful. Uh, Spider charts or flow charts? Yikes. Gouging my eye with a spoon? Is that an option? (laughs) We'll grant that one. Can I click C? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This one's unfair. Professor Karen Nelson-Field or Dr. Grace Kreitz? That is unfair because I worked with Karen for many years and I have actually only ever met Grace once for a short period of time just before we each spoke separately at the Festival of Marketing. So I, I can't really win in that sort of situation. Both. Both is fair. The Justice Scale or the Richter Scale? Well, I'll go to Justice Scale because that might tell me the probability that a earthquake will happen in the future, whereas the Richter Scale will only tell me when it's happening. And by then, it might be a bit too late. <laughs> what a smart answer. Okay, uh, this one's ditched brand assets. So, uh, Toblerone's Matterhorn or San Pellegrino's Foil Top? Oh, the foil top was a much sadder loss. I mean, the Toblerone, I mean, I know there's a bit of fuss about it, but quite frankly, how many people knew it was a Matterhorn anyway? I mean, the only reason it's actually a real problem is because it's a meaning asset, so they have to change it. If they just put any random mountain on there, would it be a problem? Well said. Uh, and finally, best time to plant a tree, 20 years ago or now? <laughs> <laughs> 20 years ago definitely and particularly the speed my pomegranate tree is growing because I love pomegranate <laughs> and I notice that there is a definite disparity between people who have pomegranate trees and people who like pomegranates there's the Venn diagram hardly crosses over at all 
And I'm one of those people who loves pomegranates and has never had a pomegranate tree apart from when I was growing up with my grandparents had one. And so I've decided to grow my own, but it's really slow. Wow. Amazing. So Jenny, listen, we're delighted to have you on the show again. So to kick things off, we usually ask about the route our guest has taken in their career to date. But for the sake of time, we'll encourage anyone who wants to hear about your first job as a talented mixologist in a football club bar making fruit cups to listen to our first episode, which we'll link link to. At 14, shall we say. That's important part of the story. At 14, yes. Yeah, very dubious. So for this episode, we're going to get stuck straight into your latest book, Better Brand Health, if we may. Can you tell us about how that came about? Because that last quickfire was a reference you make at the end of your new book about your time writing it and that kind of mindset of feeling like maybe you should have done it before. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, I'd always been interested in brand, well, basically stuff in people's heads about brands and how they use it. It's always fueled my research. And the, and the brand health tracker is essentially that brought to life on a regular basis because it's what you know companies are trying to track to understand how the stuff in people's heads is going and are they doing a good job and is this going to turn all out right for them and when we started previously as the marketing science center when we were not global but quite small and local um we operated like a boutique market research agency um in a more general sense so we worked research with companies now but it's in our, our core product areas back then we were kind of just taking whatever we could and that included brand health tracking so i managed a few different trackers for different organizations and you know probably did an okay job of it mainly because didn't really know much and the thing about brand tracking is that a lot of times you're kind of trying to sort of retrofit an explanation to something changing um, and this was really very dissatisfying for me. Um, and so I decided to set about unpacking the different areas of brand tracking. So I, I, I worked out there was those sort of different parts of the questionnaire uh, and I wanted to understand them all in more detail. So over a period of about a decade, I had different researchers coming in doing PhDs, masters by research, who would want thesis topics. And so I would give them topics related to brand health tracking. So I had someone doing one on brand awareness, someone else doing one on how do we get good measures of brand and category buying, uh, someone else looking at negative perception, someone else was looking at word of mouth online, you know, different areas where you know, people were exploring different parts of it to get an understanding of how this whole thing worked together. And some of the inadequacies in it were what fueled my own research into category entry points as type of attributes because I noticed that a lot of the attribute lists were all about brands and I'm like but isn't that buyer's brain and what's going on in their lives and also important part of this and you know distinctive assets which we noticed was were just was missing totally this whole idea of this area of brand identity and yet there was no way to track it so that sort of went off into the side things. Um, and also because I didn't know quite what to do with all this knowledge. So it just would bubble up every so often. Some of it ended up in publications academically. But quite frankly, academia wasn't all that interested in 
brand health tracking. It was it's kind of like not not pure data. And so yeah, so it kind of sat in the back burner until I finished two other books and felt right. Now I think I need to tackle this because I just kind of realized if I didn't do it, I didn't know who would because of the comprehensiveness of knowledge that needed to come into it. But it also meant I had to redo a whole heap of stuff because it's been such a long time since I did the first round. So that took a lot longer as well of replicating um, different studies to check to see they still hold. So I had more recent examples to put in to the book as well. And so, yeah, um, and then also talking to marketers and, you know, realising just how, frust- how how frustrated so many of them were with this part of their research budget they were spending a lot of money on. Um, and so all of that came together to go, well, I've got to give it a go and see if I can write this thing. So I suppose I, I passively, if that's the right word, you've been working on this book for, I suppose, most of your career <laughs> but maybe more actively in the last kind of year or so yeah yeah because it's funny isn't it especially when you talk to someone who has published so much work whether it's the papers that you've published or the books themselves you you kind of maybe falsely expect there to be some kind of chronological order but actually this sits right at the heart as well as being something that has followed your work with distinctive assets and other areas yeah, and it was really hard to know how to write this book. I mean, I did have people telling me, why are you bothering writing this? No one's going to read it. No one's that interested in this. Or That's maybe kind. a few people, a few nerdy people are interested in it. Yeah, some people are like that. Um, but yeah, and I mean, I kind of went, well, well, I, I more took it on board to say, that's a really good point. It could quite easily descend into something that's so nerdy and so sort of textbooky that, maybe people would not find it that interesting and it would be too dry and uninteresting to read. So I, I sort of went, well, you know, can I can I lift it such that it trucks? So what I've tried to do with this book is do two things and it's always a risk when you're trying to do two things. You do neither well. But I wanted this to be a book for those who are getting their hands dirty, designing questionnaires, working out how to word attributes, all of the nitty-gritty stuff that go in that is somewhat unappreciated because there are so many things that you just turn a little bit left to centre and you can screw up your data quality. But I also wanted to write it so that the people who maybe are not that involved with it but are relying on these metrics either for their own KPIs to make decisions to understand you know what was really working in marketing would also under would also want to read it and get that basis for getting the whole philosophy trajectory and foundation rights in the tracking activities that they did and know enough to know when something's good and when something could be problematic in the last couple of minutes you mentioned about talking to marketers who who seemed frustrated were they frustrated mostly with their existing brand tracking perhaps not being very effective or at least accurate? Or were they frustrated because there was a neglect to track and measure brand health? Because another word you used was, was that it was kind of unappreciated. And from my perspective, I can understand people feeling frustrated because their brand health that they're expected to uh, manage is often unappreciated in favour of probably more accessible metrics. 
Um, a, a bit of both. I mean, I, I remember talking, um, I had a really great discussion with um, Bruce McCall, who you know, was a global CMO of Mars and was our industry professor, and he was very anti-brand health tracking, and he actually stopped it at Mars. Um, and he said basically he found it a waste of money and not just that, a waste of management time because it would take them like two days to go through the reports and, you know, getting everyone together to do all this. And so he just went, really, what are we getting out of this? And, you know, we took, we spent a bit of time talking through and I explained my point of view and he was, yeah, it was kind of like, I don't say I def- definitely convinced him um, because it was just one conversation, um, but um, I need at least two to totally changed someone's mind but um yeah he at least appreciated more but i got to understand what he found to be frustrating about it yeah i mean i i think it's a whole combination of stuff of uh, just the lack of the lack of robustness in the measures the lack of um the the, the following of trends and fads which leads to these things getting put, new things getting put into questionnaires, getting tried in questionnaires, but then no one be willing to kick things out. You know, think about tracking is everyone wants to keep things tracking, even if they don't exactly know why. And, you know, I'm, and I'm, I think in academia too, there's been a, a really lack of scrutiny of this. It's not, even, I was really puzzled why there hadn't been more development in brand awareness you know, it's a pretty simple metric. Surely we should know a lot of it by now. And then I actually, you know, spent some time delving into all the papers that claim to study, to include brand awareness in academic papers and discovered they'd all been using a four-point scale to measure brand awareness, that you get people to rate things on things like, this is a brand I have seen before, strongly agree, strongly disagree. I know this brand versus that, but yeah, words like the effect. And it's like, how do you slightly agree with that? Just out of curiosity, I slightly agree. I may have somehow seen this. Before. You mean you have, or you haven't really? And and so you know, and and so this 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 is just you know, so so there's been a lack of fundamental R and D feeding into it, and then what industry has been going along measuring brand awareness in its own way. And the academic communities either just totally ignored it because they just controlled for it and how they're doing the studies, or they're using proxies. There was a paper that said, oh, we measured advertising awareness and we're just going to call that brand awareness because it's close enough. It's like, yeah, no, <laughs> it's not, and you can't do that. So, so you know, so it's, it's. I just find that there's, there's this, just it's just been somewhat stagnated, and then, and then there's all these new metrics that come out that everyone feels they have to get on the bandwagon for. But it's like, wow, well, wait a sec, there's still some really big things we need to learn, even about the fundamentals. And do you think those new metrics are one of many common problems that brands? face when measuring brand health i suppose that's that's almost a, a distraction of sorts as much as it is about the maybe flawed ways they measure look i mean i don't want to stifle innovation and i think it's great to come up with new ideas new testing and new things but you have to allow them to testing to be tested and i think so so if you want to get enthusiastic about a new measure that's untested do and, you know, because sometimes it needs proponents to get it out there and test it and create the conditions and environments for testing. But be open enough to be able to say, 
if the testing shows doesn't really have legs, to go, okay, I was wrong with that. Now on to the next thing. Yeah, it's it's okay to be enthusiastic without evidence, but then you have to be able to revise your opinion about that enthusiasm if the evidence doesn't come in the way you want it to. But I also, it's not even new metrics that this is a problem with. Even the old metrics, there's a lot of um, lack of evidence that doesn't seem to be an issue for people believing in measures. I once had a fascinating conversation with someone talking about top of mind awareness who was convinced that was the best metric. And I said, well, you know, bit of evidence that it's problematic on a few fronts and explained a few of those. And they just went, no, no, you're wrong. You're wrong. No, 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 don't disagree with that. And I said, okay, well, let's talk another way. Can you explain to me the evidence that is why you believe top of mind awareness is a great measure? Oh, I don't have any. I just believe it is. And it's like, how do you deal with that? You can't really, can you? No, especially if that's a loud voice within an organisation. Yeah, yeah. Well, or someone, you know, controlling what sort of metrics are out there. But, you know, if you're not willing to say, well, why am I tracking this? What is this? Where does this fit in with, you know, particularly with what we know about how brands grow? Yeah, we're just not going to get anywhere. So uh, this is a conversation I wanted to open up with this book to go, well, let's put a how brands grow lens on this. And let's see what this tells us about these different measures and, you know, um, whether or not they've got a chance of succeeding. Because even if we can get rid of a few where we go, you know, on balance, it's really unlikely this is going to work for these reasons. That at least narrows down to we can properly test the ones that do have a chance. There's a, there's a, there's a point, and this is probably a good time to bring it up, that you make in the book. And actually the point you just made about uh, Bruce in his time at Mars kind of echoes it that brand tracking is often seen as, as time-consuming and costly and results in these huge decks that provide either little insight or just hard to kind of process and understand and get value from. How much easier is it to track a brand versus what people assume? I don't think it has to be that complicated. But you have to have a reason. I, 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 sort, of, I sort of divide metrics into two types. There are some things that are continual assessments of your performance because these things always matter. And there are some things that are more switch-on, switch-off metrics depending on the context. They're very um, only in these sorts of situations. And the more we can understand that, the more we... Because what happens now is you get two extremes. You have on one hand the everything, everywhere, all at once dashboards that just have, you know, 3,000 different metrics with you know, traffic light stops of red, red, green, and yellow. Or the other extreme is you have the, I want only one metric and that has to work for everything all the time, all at once. So, and, you know, surely we can be a little bit more sophisticated than that and go, we can have a, a, a range of metrics, but understand the context in which they are, imp- these, the specific ones are important. So, for example, if you take something like brand rejection, okay, benchmark it. You've probably got low and normal rejection, as in normal just like other brands in your category. That is overwhelmingly the typical um, response. So does that mean you keep tracking it and reporting on it every single wave? No, not really. You don't need to do that. So you think to yourself, when might brand rejection matter? Well, 
it might matter if we screw up in some way, shape or form. You know, we, um, you know, our product formulation's not right. We launch something that's a bit of a dance. You know, there's something goes wrong. We want to check. Is that got blowback on the rest of the brand? If we launch something new, we might want to keep an eye on our brand rejection because we don't want to see it. We want to see if there are any barriers to people trialing it that might hamper its success. What about if a competitor launches something new? Might want to check on that too to see whether or not that's going to become a major player and something we should look out for. So, but outside of those circumstances, why worry about it? So, so that's when we can get a bit more sophisticated, I think. Can you just quickly explain what brand rejection as a measure is and how you would measure that? Just because I'm, I'm mindful there's people that might not know and there's lots of students who listen. So brand rejection is an attitudinal measure and it's one whereby you sort of say, I, I'm not going to buy that brand. I refuse to buy that brand. And now we do know that refusal to, to saying you would refuse to, having an attitude of refusing to buy something doesn't mean you will never buy it. And I give my um, darling young Denise uh, Gabby example of that I think I gave that in How Brands Grow Part 2 of her hating a particular fast food outlet until we were in Sydney uh, airport it was the only fast food joint and she was really hungry after a long flight she took my credit card went bought breakfast did not even bat an eyelid follow up to the story now she actually likes the brand and talks about how great its fries are which you know if this is a you know a total 180 from where she was about four or five years ago. So it can happen. Um, you go from rejection to, I wouldn't say love, but at least a strong liking. But yeah, so it's it's just about people's that they have a, an attitudinal barrier to buying. And, and the reason it's important to understand is for us with a sort of mental availability mindset, if you have a high level of rejection, it means your mental availability building activities won't translate to sales because people will think of the brand but then they'll go no no no, I don't want to buy that and so they'll reject it in the second stage and so you do want to double check you don't have anything that's untoward in terms of holding you back it also is important from a mindset perspective because a lot of people when we talk about um, that you grow by expanding your customer base there's a lot of people who still believe that people who don't buy the brand have a reason why they don't, and that there's a barrier. They, they've somehow that the people who don't buy the brand have thought about it and gone, nope, not doing that. And this just reminds people that actually, no, the vast majority of people who don't buy your brand don't have any reason why not. They just never thought of it in buying situations. It's really interesting. What in, in in the process of researching for today's episode, both uh, Beth and I, I mean, we do a lot of reading. It might not come across. I might not come across as particularly learned when I interview people, but I was I was reading a post of yours that you made a couple of months ago, and that's how I actually discovered the the justice scale that I used in the uh, quickfires earlier. And what I found fascinating with that is that, and I'm, and I'm reading this direct from your quote, these aren't my words, but in the 1960s, consumer follow-up studies found that more consumers with no previously stated intention purchased a category than consumers with a previously stated intention. That's fascinating. And actually goes to show how easily uh, kind of misunderstood or, or, or even flawed a measure could be or a question could be just by its wording well it's, it's actually about the assumptions because it, it's not that intentions measures are bad they just make assumptions that people have plans and then they follow through with that 
Um, and you know, there is a reason why it's called the road to hell. The best example of this is from the uh, work from Thomas Juster, who is the scale is named after. And, you know, basically asking things like, you know, do you intend your fridge to break down? Well, no, you don't intend that, but you can have a probability your fridge will break down if it's old, it's been making weird noises. So you can answer a different question from, do you intend to buy a new fridge? No, I don't intend to. What's the probability you're going to have to buy a new fridge? Ah, well, that's a different question because that you take into account the circumstance. Um, and there are, there are some other things that are different because um, an intention usually implies some sort of latent predisposition to act. I intend to do something. I have plans. I'm going to act on them. Whereas a probability doesn't make that assumption. It actually asks people to essentially do an on-the-spot calculation based on what they know. And that's going to be imperfect. That's why even probabilities don't fully translate. But it will give a little, it, the evidence is it gives a more realistic view of what's likely to happen because people don't just factor in what they want to do. They also factor in what's real, what happens in the world. If you've got kids, you're more likely, you know, your probability of getting sick is going to be higher than if you don't. You don't intend to get ill, but you just know you're probably going to. Yeah, I can, um, I can confirm that's true. My two little um, bug spreaders at home. <laughs> Disease carrying vectors. They're <laughs> filthy things. It must have been in the small print. I mean, something that comes up time and time again in my world, and I'm mindful that my world isn't the same as everyone else's world when we're looking at kind of agencies and, and client types. But I talk to lots of businesses and brands who um, probably need convincing that they need to be tracking their brand health in some way. Um, which might seem absurd if you're, I don't know, I was going to say if you're Bruce at Mars, but obviously back in the day, perhaps that wouldn't have been the case. But is there is there ever a case for not tracking brand health? If, you're, if you've got personal contact with your customers and you can ask them questions, then maybe there's other ways of getting that information on what's going on in their heads. Um, and, you know, this can be everything from like if you are, um, say you're a, a B2B company and you're working with such a, just a few multinationals, then there might be different ways of getting that sort of information um, because you've got a limited number of people. So it's basically your sample is, is inaccessible for an independent interview because the beauty of brand health tracking is it's, it's, if it's done right, it's an unbiased view of what's going on in the buyer's head that's not contaminated by the brand commissioning the research. Whereas if you are, you know, if they know it's you asking the question, the they, they might not want to necessarily be too honest about things or, or just not give you the full picture for whatever reason. Um, so that's the advantage of doing it independently through a separate agency. Or you can do it, um, a company can do it themselves. Um, I know, with the book, all of the analyses that are in the book can be done with a very basic statistics package and a good use of Excel. You don't really need anything particularly fancy or complicated to do it. So, I mean, I'm, I'm just, if you're going out there trying to build memories and change memories, then how do you know if you're going to do a job if you're not assessing that? Now, you could say, I'm looking at my sales figures, but you won't know why. You'll know what, but not why. And that to me is the the 
power of good brand health tracking is it helps fill in the why. And so, but it can only do that to the extent that you get quality information. Yeah, it's really well said. I just had flashbacks actually to a question you fielded at DNX in Dublin when we first met where someone, I think, asked you under what circumstances would there be argument for a complete rebrand of a business? And I think you said something along the lines of, I'm yet to see it. <laughs> yeah. Which which is brilliant and I couldn't agree more. Um, you mentioned there about building and changing memories and I forget whose quote it was originally, but it's probably been repurposed numerous times anyway, but someone said that we are in effect in the business of managing memories. Um, and you just talked about building and changing memories. What roles do the brand attributes play in those memories and, and, and how useful are they to category buyers? Well, I mean, brand attributes have been a catch-all for a whole range of different types of memories. So, so yeah, I mean, there's lots of different, we use lots of different words that really mean the same things. You can use associations, perceptions, attributes. They're all just things that are, are or can be linked to the brand in category by memory. And they have different roles to play because of how memory works. So some, their job is to evoke the brand some are more strongly linked such that when the brand is the cue, they will be evoked. And so depending on the role of them, um, yeah, there are, there are sorts of different types. And, and over the years, there have been different types of attributes proposed for better or for worse. So, for example, we've, we have things like, you know, human personality traits, which are considered to be brand attributes. Um, that was a whole... Uh, and still is actually permeates quite a number of brand health trackers where they're assessing whether brands are considered charming or dynamic or friendly or, you know, there's about 20-odd different persons, stubborn or arrogant or down-to-earth. Yeah, it gets weird sometimes. I was quite relieved. I still remember one of the first things I looked at was the brand asset valuator data from the UK, and I was quite relieved that only... 3% of the British population found their condiments charming. <laughs> Any idea which condiment it was? <laughs> yeah, no, no, condiments in, in general. Um, yeah, oh, so, in general, you okay. Know, so stuff, yeah, 3% three, 3 of the population. Now, we can question those. There's three, put it this way, there's always weirdos in, three, in any population that are about 3%. But I remember thinking, oh, okay, so if you do ask people a weird question, they can choose not to answer it. Hmm, that's useful to know. Um, I had more respect for survey methodology when I uh, discovered that. Yeah, if we're talking about it from a purely memory perspective, the role of brand attributes are predominantly to either evoke the brand or be evoked by the brand. And how should we approach building that list of, of attributes? Because, I, I mean, the way I see it and the way I was I trained, I, I obviously there's a lot of crossover here and you're right to flag that people might call these associations or attributes or characteristics or, you know, there's so much, so much not ambiguity, semantics plays a, plays a big role here in how people practice this work. But for me, it goes back to, you know, even the Aury's work on positioning um, and seeing how significant those attributes might be in terms of driving purchase or consideration. But how should we approach building an attribute list and choosing what to measure and what is and isn't significant? Because obviously charming for condiments perhaps isn't. Well, it, I mean, I, I like to go back and go, well, 
the person who's actually putting this in their memory, why are they doing that? What's the purpose of it? And and the reason for that is that you know, the, the thing you learn about memory pretty quickly is it doesn't do anything it doesn't really want to do and mm-hmm. tries to get out of things with as little energy expenditure as possible. Occasionally it likes to stretch itself a little bit more, but often not in the circumstances that would be the most useful for it. So you think about what 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 do we need our memories for? Well, our memories essentially allow us to use the past, take our past experiences and use them to make the current and the future a bit better, a bit easier. So we often want to shortcut things to get to where we want to buy. Yeah, so we don't want to spend a lot of time agonizing thinking about it because every time we have to do something from scratch, that's hard work cognitively. So our brain keeps a few things in there that help us. So, you know, I'm here in London. There are a few places I know when I just need a quick meal I can go to. But yeah, there are other options, but my brain already just goes, here's a couple, these will do for you. Um, So when you think about the different roles that associations play, so they can get, get the brand thought of, that's what we call category entry points. And we want to make sure we've got a good representation of those because, quite frankly, if the brand's not thought of, everything else is pretty redundant. Now, there are some attributes that are more called a kind of hygiene factors, or I call them baseline competencies, in that in any category, there are some things that you just you just got to do um, and you don't want to underperform in them because then people will doubt and you may get some form of rejection um, out of it. Um, but you don't necessarily need to succeed, um, like go above and beyond. So things like trustworthy, reliable, good quality, if it's a food product, tastes great. You know, these are things that are just basically table stakes that you want to keep up there with everybody, but you don't necessarily need. You know, people won't buy the most trustworthy brand but they're going to think twice about something that is underperforming on trust. So, yeah, so that's that's a difference. So how you interpret that data is differently. Distinctive assets are really important, um, brand memories to build, but and they are technically attributes in the broader sense, but I don't necessarily consider them part of the tracker because of the way they need to be measured and the frequency, which is much more sporadic, than you might do with tracking. And so I actually think they're probably better handled as a small standalone study in themselves. So that's a brand attribute, but I don't necessarily wouldn't put that in a tracker. So I've, I've put a, a formula together of about sort of 60, 70% category entry points, 20 to 30% baseline competencies, and then about 10, 20% of other stuff because there are some other interesting attributes that I've seen that people have put in. Some might be put in for um, reporting on things like corporate social responsibility or, you know, triple like, triple bottom line metrics type of things, more so than necessarily because they're considered uh, major influences on buyer behaviour. But I will just, on something you said there, Giles, I, I'm really, I mean, just be wary of driver analysis. Most of it's flawed. Time, weather, and... Boom! Sorry, it's just most podcasts would drop a jarring advert into this vacuous point in space and time. 
But Gas don't do podcast ads. And if we did, we'd probably subvert the form in a clever way that ironically gets you to contact the host, Giles Edwards, on 01189 952 007. Only the other day, some pod listening companies did just that, calling us for guidance on strategy and direct mail. Please don't do that. Now, back to the show. Yeah, I had Yoda pinned for Luke's father. Anyway, hang on. Is that is that true when you, when driver analysis is, is kind of measured passively? Because I, I, I see the biggest trap there, and I might be misunderstanding what, what your point is, but I see the biggest trap in people asking in a survey what drives purchase when, of course, people can't necessarily know that, but almost passively capturing that data, you can sometimes uncover some drivers yeah no no I, I i yeah i think i'm talking about uh, also what what you might be wearing where you might measure brand perceptions and people's propensity to buy and you then model the relationship between did they link the brand to this or rate the brand on this and their propensity and buying yeah even that's really flawed and um, there's a couple of uh, i mean i, I spent a lot of really geeky time looking at underlying patterns in brand perceptual data <laughs> more so than I probably ever want to confess but one of the things that uh, often happens in driver analysis and this happens a lot in in a lot of statistical analysis and and that is this statistics when you're looking at that sort of modeling often really really values the rare and it will go oh well if the rare does something then that must be really important. So I'm going to give it a big weighting of importance, whether that be a B value, a significance value, and some sort of whatever you whatever sort of modeling you're doing. I did this analysis actually working with the brand asset valuator data because the way that data was collected was there was a generic set of attributes that were applied to a wide range of categories. And they just kind of I just thought, well, this is a bit weird. There must be some, you know, there's obviously some attributes here. Like, for example, one of the attributes was healthy and one of the categories was cars. All right. Who says their car is healthy? And, <laughs> yeah, yeah, invariably there would be a couple of people who did. So that led me to the question to go, so these are obviously weird kind of linkages people are making. So who's making those linkages? Are they people who know nothing about the car? Or are they people who pretty much would say anything? You know, basically you say, which is the brand most likely to be found on the moon? And they'd go, yeah, that's the brand type of thing. And it turned out it was the latter. Um, The people who were giving these kind of what would be considered at face value quite weird linkages weren't people who were incorrect or guessing or you know, just felt like they should say something. They weren't just sporadic. They were actually people who would pretty much say anything linked to the brand. And so what that happens is they tend to be really heavy category buyers. So the people who give rare associations are heavy category buyers. So if you model them, it looks like, oh my God, having that rare association makes you be a heavy category buyer and it's a reverse causality. It's just because they are heavy category buyers that they would say anything. And that's a, one of the problems with driver analysis is it tends to overvalue rare associations because of that. 
Yeah, and so there's there's other stuff as well, but that's just one example whereby without if you don't understand the underlying patterns, you can come to some faulty assumptions based on the modelling. Yeah, sure. That makes a lot of sense. I was wondering maybe if it was their car had broken down so they were forced to walk more. <laughs> <laughs> I think we'd better go to listen to questions, Jenny, just because we've got three that I intend to uh, hurry away. So... Asking the general public for their opinion, be it on Brexit or boat names, is notoriously fraught with danger. So today we've got three. I'm going to start with one that feels closest to what we've been talking about. And it comes from Zoe. And Zoe asks, quite simply, how much can category entry points vary between category buyers? Incidentally, I enjoyed, I really enjoyed your Festival of Marketing talk on this point. And you, you actually had a great slide where you used champagne to demonstrate your, your w framework and it reminded me of that brilliant lily bollinger quote about when she drinks champagne <laughs> i'm not sure if you've heard it it's, yeah. <laughs> i thought that might yes, be an I anomaly i can't repeat it but yes I mean, well yeah i always say my favorite time to drink champagne is tuesday well, no, because Tuesday is usually a day where, I, I, funny enough, and the last time I was talking about this was actually Tuesday as well. Um, but Tuesday tends to be a day whereby nothing much is going on. You know, it's not that bad. I've had Monday, but it's not near the end of the week. And I, my feeling of champagne is that um, it's always better when you're feeling okay, because then you can go up a lot with some good champagne. If you only have champagne when you're celebrating, there's not much how much better can you feel you're celebrating already so that's that's but that's that's just me um but yeah no category entry points can vary a lot across people um and 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 some category entry points can be really 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 individually specific if you really dive into a person but the problem is they're not very scalable so they're not very interesting from a marketing perspective they're interesting from an anthropological perspective not very useful for messaging in an ad campaign. So we need to find some things that have uh, some common ground with lots of people agreeing, even though individually people might have their own sets of category entry points. There are some that are universal too. Do enough people to make it worthwhile for a marketer to invest in building up links to the brand with it. But yes, individually, there's a lot of heterogeneity and that's something that's often lost when we see brand health tracking, the individual heterogeneity underneath gets masked in the roll-up of, you know, uh, 45% said our brand has this quality and 72% said we have this other quality and 26% this other quality. When we roll up data that way, we kind of lose the sense of the, the, the quite diverse range of buyers underneath. But I suppose it, for, 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 you know, for good reason too, you, you almost need to. Yeah, but we, I mean, when we do our um, category entry point studies, one of the things we do include, which I'm pretty sure our researchers really don't like me for making them do, is we do a slide where we show one person across a set of four or five category entry points, the actual brands they had linked to it, to make the point that this data we're showing you is made up of all these people. And these people, when they have different category entry points will have different brands and different numbers of brands linked to it. And your job as a marketer is to try and to get into as many of these different 
evoke sets for as many people as possible. And each time you do that, you're going to sometimes be the only brand, sometimes you're one of 10. And all of in between, you can be in two different evoke sets of four brands with totally different brands, or two are the same and one is totally different. That's the reality of memories, the variability of it and what we're working with. And I, I think if we, we need to retain some sense of that because that probabilistic nature of memory stops us from falling in the traps of thinking that memory building is something that you do, you finish and you go home and you move on to something else. So yeah, um, I like doing that. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, that, you, you're absolutely right. We can't just neatly tidy these things up in full groups all the time. And we need to acknowledge that. Uh, question two is from John, our own John Lyons. I mean, we've touched on this, but John asks, do you think that the industry is doing brand surveys poorly or is the issue more that many aren't doing them at all? Um, I think it's a bit of both. In that I don't think surveys are, well, I don't want to describe them as poor. I think that some of them have just done the wrong things for the right reasons and that's part of what I'm trying to unwind because I I do remember the discussions of why some of these changes have happened in how for example we word attributes we're at a frustration because there was not much change being seen and so people were trying to experiment with different ways of getting more sensitive data it's just unfortunate that the decisions they made actually made the data less sensitive than um, some other decisions they could have made. So, so part of it is about you know giving a framework so that people make better decisions and some suggestions of what those better decisions might be. But I'm hoping the book is more of a conversation starter than pretending that, oh, well, we've solved brand tracking now, I can move on to something else. Because there's still a lot to learn in that field, but I want to just set the parameters of the discussion to go, well, Let's think about who's important here. Let's think about what we're trying to do. Let's think about the marketing activity we're doing and, and trying to design something that helps us across the board. I do think some people have given up and have stopped doing it or stopped paying attention to it, and that is to the detriment. And, you know, it is to some extent, particularly the beginning part of it, there's a bit of a love letter brand health tracking as to why I do think it's a really important part of the research that a company does to understand and improve its brand's performance. So, you know, I do want it to get better. And I also, I mean, I also want that from a selfish perspective because the better quality data that companies have to make decisions now means better quality data for R&D ongoing, which is sort of, you know, this is what we need to move forward as a profession as well. Uh, the third question is is from a call to action alumni and good friend of Gus, uh, Brian McCready. Um, and I'm interested to know your opinion on this, uh, because obviously his point here is UK specific, but your answer doesn't need to be. But Brian says, just today, I re-stumbled over two of my favourite ever ads. The Lily Allen Somewhere Only We Know, one for John Lewis, and the Peter K. Abbott for John Smith's. And I got all the feels again. Anyway, I'd love to know what Jenny's favourite ads are. <laughs> I There's an ad I really, that actually surprises me how much I like it and that I'm not sick of it given I see it all the time. And it's called, it's it's for a 
local company in Adelaide that is like a service station. They basically do like the shops and outlets at service stations. They're called On The Run, OTR. And they have an ad that's for uh, a sub-brand of those called Moe's that is a hot dog brand. It's like a $3 hot dog. And it is hilarious. It's got, it's very funny to watch. It is got a really catchy tune. It's going through my head now as I'm talking to you, but I'm not going to sing it. You're just going to have to find the link and share that with people. Um, but it is, it's just a really, really, um, just really amazingly catchy, well-designed ad. Um, the only stark criticism I have about it is it's trying to sell two brands in that it's trying to sell the retailer brand and the product brand. And I, we know from our co-branding research, that's a really big challenge. So I don't know any success metrics on it, but I do think it's a very creative ad. And uh, yeah, it always makes me smile. And I actually saw one of the actors at one of the, um, at, when we were out to lunch recently, or someone I was with pointed them out. And I'm like, oh my God, felt like I was a little bit starstruck. <laughs> Did you talk to them? Yeah, uh, no, 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 no. Um, but the other, <laughs> I, I will say, I saw an ad uh, here in the UK that will always have a form of nostalgia for me, and it is the um, Beans Means Heinz the substitution ad. Um, and the reason I love that, anytime I see any ad with Beans Means Heinz, is that Gerald Goodhart, who is Famous as the well, one of Andrew Ehrenberg's big collaborators, he was you know he did so much fantastic work. A lot of it behind the scenes. Andrew was the one that went out and presented. Gerald was kind of one of the key mathematicians behind the scene doing things. But he had the most wonderful sense of humour and was you know such a generous person with his thoughts and times. Anyway, he first started out at a market research agency, and one of his first clients was Heinz. And he actually wrote the line that said in the report that said, to the British housewife, Heinz means beans. And that is what they turned around to create that tagline of beans means Heinz. And so whenever I think of that, I always think of Gerald. So it's a very fond memory for me. That's wonderful. Oh, it's a great story. Well, Brian's going to be delighted with that. I'm going to try and find that Moe's ad. I might have to ask you to validate it and check that it's the right one. But I'll see if I can send you a link. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, hopefully that will be in the listing as our listeners are going to have a quick scroll and see if it's there. Sorry, the final part of the interview, Jenny, is our four pertinent poses. I wonder if, if much has changed. Number one is uh, what advice would you give to your younger self? Oh, God, I can't even remember what I gave myself last time. Um, I would say um, start writing earlier and, yeah, relax, chill. And planting pomegranate trees earlier. <laughs> well, I wouldn't. I actually moved house in 2018, so any pomegranate oh, okay. tree I'd planted earlier would have been no use to Long gone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, number two, if you could banish one thing from the industry, what would it be and why? Oh, yeah, that's a tough one because it's, it's kind of like I feel like you're putting me in front of a giant buffet and asking me to pick one thing and walk away, <laughs> which is not really what a buffet is supposed to be for. It's not, you're right. Um, you're sort right. of stuff. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I all right, I'll, I'll just put it, the net promoter score, Let's we, we should be over this by now. 
you know, it's it's had its run, it's tried, it was a great idea, but the evidence just uh, and and some of the defence I see for it now. Um, I just kind of like going, you're really trying hard to justify using this in the absence of any evidence. Maybe the best, you know, the old adage, the best the best thing about banging your head against a brick wall is it feels so good when you stop. <laughs> uh, that's how I kind of feel about the net promoter score. Maybe we should just stop and we would feel better because, you know, we wouldn't be hitting our heads so hard. Oh, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. I don't know if you met. I think you you may have met Richard Hammond, or at least be familiar with Richard Hammond from on Uncrowd, because he was speaking at um, DNX when when we met in Dublin. But he's uh, he would be he would be whooping and cheering that point you just made, Jenny. Uh, number three. Are there any books that you would recommend? So just for uh, full transparency, in your previous episode, you recommended A Scandalous Life, which is why I rather unfairly threw it into the quick fires. Is there anything you've read since that's worth a mention? Um, uh, I have such trashy reading um, tastes right now that I'm not sure. I'd like to, you know, I always think, yeah, how's this going to reflect on me? And probably not well. Um, yeah, no, I've just been reading all sorts of different trash. Actually, the, I mean, the, yeah, currently reading the books on slow horses, yeah, the Apple um, Apple TV series. These the books behind them. I've been reading those. Yeah, I don't read a lot of serious stuff. I read a lot of fun stuff because I, I have to do serious stuff for work. Well, exactly, precisely that. I, I actually know of a few listeners, at least, who who were really grateful for for the scandalous life tip, oh, including good. my wife Sophie, who devoured it and said it's probably the best book she's read in years. Isn't it weird? It hasn't been made into a movie. Her life was amazing. How is how is this not Netflix? What are you doing with yourself? This is a fantastic story. Um, yeah, no, it's is absolutely amazing. Um, so yeah, I don't have anything really to top that. The only probably the only book I, I like that uh, just generally is always a, a great read is um, Richard Feynman's The Meaning of It All. And the reason I like that is I love his description of George. And George was who, so Richard Fund didn't like doing admin, didn't like the whole things he didn't like doing. So, and he realised that he felt guilty when he just didn't do something. So he, he invented George and he just said, George will do that. Now, George didn't exist and George couldn't actually do anything. But he found that he just felt psychologically more comfortable not doing something if he imagined George was going to do it. And I think that's a really good philosophy to have for some things in our life, to just go, yeah, George will handle that. Um, so I think, I mean, the, the book and Richard Palmer himself explained it so much more eloquently than I ever could. But yeah, it's it's yeah, that's a little bit of an intellectual read. But I, I love that, um, yeah, perspective on life. That's brilliant. I've never, I've never heard of that. I've never heard that. I've never heard that story of George. I might start adopting that because that that I can see that working really well with me. Brilliant. We would also list uh, obviously Better Brand Health, which is available now worldwide. We had a little bit longer to wait than we wanted to, if I'm uh, totally honest there. <laughs> but it was available in ebook format and now hardbook. Well, a few people got a more interesting book perhaps in their delivery if you actually press the wrong button. And you got the version from Victoria Penn. Yeah, um, yeah. Some people 
Yeah, yeah. Apparently, there was a, a rather salacious soft porn novel that you got instead of Bed of Bad Health. So now, when people say to me that they really enjoyed reading it and they learned a lot from it, I do have to ask them, which version did you get? Just checking before I say anything more. Can you just tell me a little bit about what you read first? Yeah, yeah I was. <laughs> Not at all what we expected, but. <laughs> no, not right. I'm just thinking of all of the books to copy a parrot and send a soft porn novel in its place. Better Brand Health wouldn't have been in my top 100 choices. Put it that way. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm weirdly flattered, but a bit perturbed by the whole thing. Did the reverse um, also anyway. happen? Pe- people who had ordered the soft porn received Better Brand Health, do we know? Uh, I don't know, but um, yes, I haven't said <laughs> the thing. But no, it just yeah, it, it's the cover. So the covers they've ripped off the cover and then written a, a my, so it's my name and then a Victoria pen underneath it, and it's his workbook. And then if you order that, you basically get like a really bad version of my cover, and inside is a printed book of a somewhat salacious nature, apparently. Um, oh, and so people have been getting this fulfillment issue. Oh, wow. No, no, no. This is people who have just... So what someone's done is a scam, and so they send you this, but you pay the price. So obviously the people are then reporting it to Amazon, and we, when people let us know, are reporting it to Amazon as well, but they are still out there. So just if anyone is ordering it, I did not co-author anything with Victoria Penn. It's just me on the authorship, and it's not a workbook. It's a genuine book. So, yeah, no, this is something that's popped up in about three or four different countries. Um, no, yeah. That's, yeah. that's absurd. But I, didn't, I wow. didn't think they actually got like a proper book, but someone um, in Canada informed me because they obviously opened it up and started reading <laughs> it and went, okay, not, not where I was expecting this book to go. And then realised the error. So, yeah. Oh, wow. What a, what a weird, weird happening. Well, I'm sorry for that, uh, any... Stress that, that that's inevitable. Particularly cool, for it? a book on brand health. I mean, I understand for a whole heap of other books why you might do that. I just don't understand why you would do it for a book on brand health. I really don't. So yeah. Well, the, the same that people who funny. have charm, the same people who have charming condiments and um, healthy cars, perhaps. Weird. There's weirdos out there. Number four, then Jenny, is we always dedicate every episode to someone. Uh, and we bestow that honour to our guest who has to give their reason why. So would you kindly dedicate this episode? Oh. Well, we were talking about my two pups and saying they've both been a bit in the wars. Um, poor Alf uh, lost an eye due to eye cancer. So he's walking around with my little pirate dog, um, one-eyed, um, but still demanding food. And then I have my little honey who is over 16 now and... Basically, I said to him before I leave, can you just hold on? Still be there when I get back. So I'm going to dedicate this to both of them because they were with me all through the writing of the book, had to listen to me argue with myself about various things, and they sat through and listened to many a different podcast. Granted, Alf has snored through most of them, so I'm not sure maybe honey more than Alf, but, you know. Um, but yeah, they, they, they were the, the, the little support team that helped me write the book and as always. So, uh, yeah, they, they were, I dedicate this one to. A super cool, brilliant. Well, this episode is very proudly dedicated to Alf and Honey. Uh, so as a final call to action, uh, we will list everything discussed, including 
better brand health, uh, slow horses, the meaning of it all. We'll dig out Mo's uh, ads. But not the soft porn version. Well, <laughs> we'll perhaps. I mean, let's not <laughs> encourage that behaviour, Giles. Come on. We've got to draw a line somewhere. So, no, no. I'm, I'm putting a, I'm saying no to that one. You cannot list the link to the soft porn version of some book that is called Ben and Brand Health, the workbook. Um, so, yeah. Okay. We won't link to that book. But it is out there. How else can our listeners get more Jenny Womanek? Oh, yikes. Um, well, if anyone's in Seoul, I'll be speaking at a conference there in a couple of weeks. I'm very excited about that, not being to South Korea. So if anyone does have any recommendations for South Korea, please hit me up on LinkedIn. Um, but yeah, LinkedIn's the main thing that will, um, where I interact with most. Okay, we'll, we'll link to your profile there as well, just to make it um, extra easy for people to find you. Uh, Jenny, thank you for joining us again. It has been an absolute pleasure again and a privilege yet again to talk. I've really enjoyed it. Likewise. And finally, thank you to everyone listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do share and review the podcast. Keep your questions and guest requests coming in. To get in touch, it's easy to find GASP online or you can email calltoaction at gasp.agency. I can't get no call to action. I can't get no call to action, but I try. And I try, and I try, and I try.